You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Today is a new day, and dear listeners, we have to turn a corner and see the positives in all the so-called bad news that we've had to share this week. When a mission doesn't meet its objectives, it's often seen as and reported as a failure, and then we all get really bummed about it, but we really shouldn't let the conversation end there. After all, failure is an opportunity to learn. We pick ourselves up and try again— Because we learn through doing, after all. And there are a lot doing great things in space. Today is January 10th, 2024. I'm Maria Varmazes, and this is T Minus. India's Aditya L1 reaches its final destination. China prepares its lunar lander for launch. Ariane Group reportedly increases financial support for Maya Space. And my guest today is John Rendon, the CEO of the media company The Rendon Group. Now, John was involved in the Inter Astra event that T Minus attended last year, and that's making waves in the space industry. So stay with us for that chat. Here's our Intel briefing for today. And hey, yesterday was kind of a bummer, right? So let's start off today instead with some good news. And little surprise that it's coming from India right now. Last year, right after ISRO's Chandrayaan-3 landed successfully at the lunar south pole, ISRO followed close behind that mission with another one. This one was headed towards the sun. That was in September 2023, the Aditya L1 Solar Observation Mission, which is India's first space-based mission to study the sun. And today, ISRO announced that Aditya has reached its final destination at Lagrange Point 1, or L1, a mere 1.5 million kilometers away from Earth. Parked there, Aditya L1 and its seven onboard instruments will soon be studying different parts of the sun, including its corona, its photosphere, and its chromosphere. Very cool. 
or since it's our son, perhaps I should say, extremely hot. Staying in Asia, and China's space agency has shared images showing its latest lunar explorer has arrived at the launch site in preparation for a mission to the moon in the first half of this year. State broadcaster CCTV posted the photographs on its website of the unit as it was unloaded from a large cargo airplane earlier this week and then transported by flatbed truck to the Wenchang launch site on southern China's Hainan Island. European Space Flight is reporting that Arian Group is looking to increase their investment in Maya Space to 125 million euros. Now, Maya Space was founded in 2021 with the aim of developing a partially reusable micro-launcher. Arian Group has invested approximately 40 million euros into the launch company so far, and the report says it has committed an additional 85 million euros to the cause making the company one of the most well-funded launch startups in Europe. Over to Scotland now, and University of Glasgow engineers have built and fired the first unsupported autophage rocket engine, which consumes part of its own body for fuel. Yeah, autophage, the so-called self-eating rocket, has several potential advantages over conventional rocket designs. According to the university, the engine works by using waste heat from combustion to sequentially melt its own plastic fuselage as it fires. The molten plastic is fed into the engine's combustion chamber as additional fuel to burn alongside its regular liquid propellants. The team's design developments are being showcased this week as a paper presented at the International AIAA SciTech Forum in Orlando, Florida. The engineers say that they successfully test-fired their Ouroboros 3, great name, autophage engine, producing 100 newtons of thrust in a series of controlled experiments. The autophage engine is one of 23 space technology projects selected to share £4 million in funding from the UK Space Agency and STFC. The Glasgow team received £290,000 to help establish further pilot testing of the prototype engine. And a little editorial note, the video of the autophage engine is really cool. We'll have a link for you in the show notes so you can check it out. ABL Space Systems is looking to raise $100 million in new funding as the company closed over $40 million in new capital, according to a filing with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. ABL has raised $420 million from investors since it was founded in 2017. You can read more about that story in the TechCrunch article that we've linked in our show notes for you. And during the NASA media update that we ran with as our top story yesterday, the SpaceX representative on the call said that the company is targeting February for their next Starship test. Jessica Jansen, who is the vice president of customer operations and integration at SpaceX, said securing an updated Federal Aviation Administration launch license was the key factor driving the schedule for the vehicle's third test flight. She went on to say that the Starship hardware will be ready this month. An update now on the astrobotic Peregrine Lunar Lander mission. The vehicle is at an approximate distance of 192,000 miles from Earth, which is 80% of the way to lunar distance. Although it is approaching lunar distance, the moon won't be there. The company says that Peregrine remains on our nominal trajectory for the mission, which includes a phasing loop around Earth. This loop goes out to lunar distance, swings back around the Earth, and then cruises out to meet the moon. This trajectory reaches the moon in about 15 days post-launch. 
Astrobotics' current hypothesis about the Peregrine spacecraft's propulsion anomaly is that a valve between the helium pressurant and the oxidizer failed to reseal after actuation during initialization. This led to a rush of high-pressure helium that spiked the pressure in the oxidizer tank beyond its operating limit and subsequently ruptured the tank. While this is a working theory, a full analysis report will undoubtedly be produced by a formal review board made up of industry experts after the mission is complete. There is no indication that the propulsion anomaly occurred as a result of the launch on ULA's Vulcan. Peregrine continues to leak propellant, unfortunately, but remains operationally stable and continues to gather valuable data. Astrobotic estimates that it will run out of propellant in about 35 hours, an improvement on yesterday's update. Well, the team is working around the clock to generate options to extend the spacecraft's life. Citus Space says it has achieved critical artificial intelligence and hardware contract milestones as the company prepares for the commencement of its satellite constellation, which is scheduled for launch in March 2024. SpaceX's Transporter 10 mission from Vandenborg Space Force Base, California, will carry Citus Space's LizzieSat-1 to orbit. The milestone is part of the NASA Phase II sequential award to Citus. And we're finishing our roundup today with a story about a picture. <laughs> yep, audio-only podcast talking about an image. Don't you love it? But this one had us a little excited. Okay, a lot excited. <laughs> Space photographer John Krause captured an image of Blue Origin's New Glenn first-stage hardware on the move at the company's Merritt Island campus this morning. It's presumably headed to LC-36, which is Blue's launch complex at Cape Canaveral Space Force Station, just nine miles away from their rocket factory. Could we be seeing testing ahead of the inaugural launch in August of this year? Well, I certainly would hope so. Just watch this space. And that concludes our briefing for today. We encourage you to follow the links in the selected reading section of our show notes, to learn more about any of the stories that we've mentioned in today's briefing. And we've added four additional stories today. A New York Times piece on space causing pollution problems. The U.S. Space Force selections for their Space Strategic Technology Institute. An announcement for a new space platform. And one on a NASA proposal selection to swarm Proxima Centauri. Hmm. They're all at space.nuk.com and just click on this episode title. Hey, T-Minus crew, if you find this podcast useful, please do us a favor and share a five-star rating and short review in your favorite podcast app. That will help other space professionals like you to find the show and join the T-Minus crew. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. 
all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. My guest today is John Rendon, CEO of the media company, The Rendon Group. Now, John was involved in the Inter Astra event that T-Minus attended last year, and that event is making waves in the space industry. So, John started by telling me about his background. A thousand years ago, when I was young, I served as executive director and political director of the Democratic Party of the United States, the youngest one in the history of the country at that time. I worked for President Carter in the Carter administration and have provided support on and off um, over the last thousand years in 142 countries um, and spent a lot of time uh, meeting new people, learning new things. And I'm fortunate enough to have the world as a teacher. And when I look up, I see space. Um, I will tell you my first space connection was Leonard Nimoy. What a connection to have. My yeah, goodness. <laughs> who I met in 1974, uh, probably a long time before many of your listeners were actually concepts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, but but since then and over the last two years, uh, our global strategic engagement practice has focused more and more on space as an extraordinary opportunity, both to get countries to come together uh, but also to understand the magnitude of the enterprise. And so I'm fortunate and honored to be your guest today. And thank you for having me. And Happy New Year, by the way. Oh, Happy New Year to you as well. Uh, well, uh, the, the honor is mine. Thank you so much for for joining me and for sharing your story with me and my audience. Now, I, I know the, the introduction that we had was through the Inter Astra event. Can you explain a little bit of your connection to that event? Sure. One of the original founders of that event, Che Bolden, who is the son of uh, Director Bolden uh, of NASA, uh, he and I are very close friends. And when Intraastra began, which was about, I think now 20 months ago, uh, he uh, invited us to come and participate. So I, I went um, and it served as a foundational meeting, particularly in the design of the uh, session done by um, uh, Candy Huff, who, who did an extraordinary job making sure it was a totally learning environment and not a speaking environment first. And so uh, Che invited me the first time. I learned a lot at the first one, found it to be extraordinarily helpful. And so I came along with team members to the second one. Well, that's fantastic. I'm I'm curious about any takeaways that you had from this year. I, I did not attend, so I've only heard about it in, in passing, but uh, it sounded like a really extraordinary time. Anything that you can share with our audience about it? Sure. No, I'm delighted to do that. I, th I think um, my first really big takeaway came from the magnitude of the enterprise. Uh, there were a number of people who were talking about how, so this year different than last year, and I'll, I'll come back to last year in a second, but this year, uh, the magnitude of the enterprise for people to work in space there is a long tail of people to work on space here on Earth. And the absence 
aerospace programs focused on space uh, seem to be a really significant strategic shortfall. And so I, I took that away as um, a very big epiphany, if you will, began conversations with different university presidents in the United States, encouraging them to look at creating space programs to build a workforce for the future, not for next year, but maybe five or 10 years out, and even had discussions with some of them about opening campuses in space. Opening campuses in space. Well, that's a fascinating idea. So, you know, they're they're taking a hard look at both building a workforce to work on space in order for people to work in space, and also taking a look at opening campuses, probably on the space station, obviously. But potentially that's a lunar opportunity as well. Now, what I learned learned in the first one is the significant difference between old space enterprises and new space enterprises. Yep. The old space enterprises would be the cast of characters, the usual cast of characters that everybody associates with big uh, launches and big satellites. And the new space crowd would probably be within the last five years. The irony is that in conversations I've had with CEOs is when new space companies are acquired by old space companies, the old space companies try to force them into the old space structure and process, which immediately kills off innovation. It's, it's a fascinating description. The second thing I focused on at the first conference was um, the difference between the space to earth opportunities and the space-to-space opportunities. And some of that bridged the two. The really significant observation I had, which is probably part of your question, was the difference between horizontal and vertical launch, which deserves a lot more attention, I think, than it's getting. I would agree with you on that for sure. Um, that's that's one that I, I also my producer is very passionate about because she used to work at a spaceport. So she's uh, really strong on that one. Given the the range of people that you've spoken with and also just your professional experience, I, I'm so curious, what excites you about what's going on in space right now and where things are going? Because you have a fascinating perspective. I'd love to know, like, what, what makes you go, that's so cool. I can't wait to hear more about that. So um, some of it's driven off of, you know, what our foundations related to space are, which is not just looking up and wondering that would be like but also the role that entertainment, motion pictures, um, even uh, series on television or streaming um, have had on shaping people's perspective and behavior. And I think that opens the door to the possibility. And and with that door open, I've noticed an increasing amount of collaboration, cooperation and the absence of polarization with people who work in space and those who help them get there. I think if we're going to find a way out of the great polarization, which is taking place not just in the United States, but globally, country by country, that's going to be one way that can work. The second thing is, despite people consistently fighting over, you know, global climate change, it is a global climate crisis. The ability to get to space and see the planet from there and understand that we're all in this together is significant. And I think that's the way that, you know, that'll be 
one of the drivers of change if we're to get past the roadblocks of indecision. That's fascinating. And you mentioned pop culture, and I remember at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned Leonard Nimoy, and I just made me, I, mean, I can't help but just comment on that. Uh, it's, I'm a Trekkie, so I, as soon as you mentioned him, I, that is the, the gateway for so many of us, although that is changing now. Um, it, but it's, it is fascinating to see how that comes up uh, in, in so many unexpected and ex- maybe expected ways. So that's, that's really cool. Um, John, I, I just wanted to give you the floor uh, before we conclude. If there's anything from uh, your takeaway from InterAstra or anything that you wanted to comment on about space before we close out, I wanted to give you that opportunity. I think the only thought I would share with you, yeah, I've touched on briefly in conversations that I've had, but but that I think matter for those of, of your listeners that are in higher education, the ability to get higher education to focus on space as an opportunity across all sciences, not just aerospace or engineering, but across all sciences, I think is essential. And to the extent that people are decision makers or in the circle of influence around decision makers, or even just students, I would encourage them to begin a process now, plant those seeds, and at some point they'll take hold. And I would encourage everybody to do that. I see this as an extraordinary opportunity for the entire planet, not just for the country. That is such a wonderful way to close out. John, thank you so much for your time and for your insights. I really appreciate it. This has been a really fascinating conversation. May the force be with you always. We'll be right back. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome back. We reported about its launch back in September and now... Prism has shared its first images. Prism, which stands for X-ray Imaging and Spectroscopy Mission, has released a first look at the unprecedented data it will collect when science operations begin in earnest later this year. The satellite science team revealed a snapshot of a cluster of hundreds of galaxies and a spectrum of stellar wreckage in a neighboring galaxy, which gives scientists a detailed look at its chemical makeup. Now, CRISM is led by the Japanese space agency JAXA in collaboration with NASA and with input from ESA. The objective of the mission is to investigate celestial X-ray objects in the universe with high-throughput imaging and high-resolution spectroscopy. The mission has two instruments, Resolve and Extend, each at the focus of an X-ray mirror assembly designed and built at Goddard. 
The mission team used Resolve to study N132D. Quick quiz, you know what it is? No? Okay. It's a supernova remnant and one of the brightest X-ray sources in the large Magellanic Cloud, a dwarf galaxy around 160,000 light years away in the southern constellation Dorado. The expanding wreckage, and I really love that word wreckage, is estimated to be about 3,000 years old and was created when a star roughly 15 times the sun's mass, our sun's mass, ran out of fuel, collapsed, and exploded. The Resolve spectrum shows peaks associated with silicon, sulfur, calcium, argon, and iron. This is the most detailed X-ray spectrum of the object ever obtained and demonstrates the incredible science that the mission will do when regular operations begin later this year. Such fascinating science is still to come, and I can't wait to learn more. That's it for T-minus for January 10th, 2024. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Jen Iben. Our VP is Brandon Karp. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With SixthSense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose SixthSense, visit SixthSense.com. <laughs>